Heavenly Father, thanks for a new day of life. Thanks for the hope. Thanks for all your blessings in our existence, in our life. We cannot count them. We are very grateful. Your love make us be positive. Your love make us be enthusiastic about life, even when we know that this world is not what you want. However, thank you for helping us, guide us, and support us in a special way, especially when we have big needs, when we are in trouble. In Jesus' name, amen. I still have one copy of Methods of Bible Study. I don't know if everybody have their copy. You want one? Sure. Thank you, sir. He asked first. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking to me. Let me see. I have another no, one. Okay. okay. And now, today, before reviewing everything, we are going to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Berks. 2 to 16, welcome, and we have the issue of uh, worship in this portion of the scripture. So, there's a big issue of worship and idols that we have yes. to address and then look for the principle and the application for today. Our sister is going to read for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 to 16, because I really believe that the Bible is the standard for everything, okay? Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even, for, for that is even all one, as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves, is it commonly for a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Thank you. So that's the portion of the scripture 
that we're going to face now. I noticed that all the pictures of Christ well, Jesus was from Nazareth, and Nazaridians yes. used to have long hair, you see? But Paul is facing a new situation. What Paul is, this is my brother, Ronald Costa. Paul is facing a new situation. Paul is facing that the church he's addressing is a church full of pagans, Gentiles that become uh, Christians, believers. So they have all this this issue about secularity, idolatry. He's not addressing to a church that basically the background is Jewish. Depending of to whom you are addressing, you write. So Paul knew that there is no Nazarenes in that church. So he write uh, telling them that the hair must be properly cut. And Paul was an example of that too. And, and they have their, their own issues with Jesus. They, they don't claim in this chapter to use long hair or he don't wrestle with them saying that they use long hair because of the party of Christ. You see, that doesn't come up. So he's tackling something in a specific. It's like today you have many family members but you know them more or less. So depending who make the question, which is his background, you answer the question. And Paul was addressing the issue of the hair in the woman and the hair on men from the perspective of a pagan background that comes to the church, you see? So he don't give it a big explanation about Jesus and his long hair. He just an apologist. He is confronting the issue that he see is not clear. But there is somewhere in the Bible that gives a, a hint that Nazarenes do have long hair. Yes, in the Old Testament. And, yes, I remember that. And also in the biblical dictionaries, you find out the big explanation. And there are tribes that used to have long hair. You have another example, Samson. But that was many years ago. This is the first century. The reality of the first century in the, in the world of the believers is another. And Paul is not talking for, of people that are from the Jewish background. He's confronting, you know, norms. Norms are for protecting principles. But norms are not principles. Principles are universal and apply to everybody. But a norm in the Nazareans is to have long hair. Now he's presenting a norm to the society in which the church is. And the norm that he presenting to the believers, to the church, is to confront society. Okay? That's the way we, we can put it out. First, we do an outline. An outline is where you put the simple things and the main issue, and then we go to the interpretation. Uh, Paul is saying the following thing uh, in verse 3, the head of every man is Christ. Paul wants to say that in public worship, woman should treat man as the head. In order to explain this, he refers in different, in various ways to the head of God's creation. He says that God was the head of Christ. 
He also said that Christ was the head of man, and he says also that man was the head of woman. It's very simple the way he, he do it. He's, he's trying to, to put a platform for what he's going to say. For example, if, if Paul says woman should keep silent, like in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4, he was probably saying that any, anything different but telling to women in that context to try to be quiet when the church is not more a household, her household, but becomes on the Sabbath the church. So the priority is that the officials of the church, the head of the church, have the ability to work out the worship, you see? In verse 10, here in chapter 11, Paul talks about the veil. And I'm going to ask you a question. The veil of a woman, what is? Different interpreters try to figure out why Paul says that. Some of them says, remember, in that area, the pagans used to have a temple. It's the was the Playboy mansion of the that era. It's the temple of Aphrodite. Well, they make many rituals with fire, with wind, with water, and with earth. But finally, the main thing was to have a banquet and to experience ecstasies, you see? And the priesthood of that temple used to have long hair and was loose. So any man so, can. Uh, so a woman's hair, they had this way, wasn't. Uh, it wasn't right. The 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 priesthood of the temple have a, a certain way of having their uh, hair loose, so anybody can recognize them as priests of that temple, and they can have uh, intercourse with them. You see, and. The church was in the same area. So Paul first, in a sociological way, he wants to make a difference. So men and women can recognize that the ladies of the church are not the same ladies. They are religious, but are not the same ladies of the temple of Aphrodite. Okay? There is a social concern there. But also, we realize that there was an influence in the church. We talk about that influence was the Gnosis, the knowledge, the full knowledge of the Gnostics. And the Gnostics established that the body is not important so who cares the impression that you give in society? The important thing is that you understand you're safe. Have you heard that argument before? <laughs> there is no, the, the, the important is not in the exterior, but in the interior idea that because you are, you have the knowledge and you are safe, but whatever impression the body doesn't matter or even whatever you do with your body 
is a secondary uh, level, so it's not really important. And Paul has to tackle all the influence of Gnosticism in the church. And he talks about the hair as a veil, and also he used the word exousia. The thing is that you don't have the word the word bell. It's in the translations of the Bible. But what you have there, uh, philologically speaking, is exousia. And exousia means authority. So Paul is telling that the authority of the woman is the hair. Because the hair covers her. God made the hair for the woman to cover her and to be different to man. You see? Why Paul used to, to emphasize that with this word, esusia? Do you have an idea? Except that they should be apart from or acknowledge as a position, different uh, function. Mm -hmm. uh, woman's hair is her authority, okay? And this is important because he relates this authority to the metaphysical reality of the angels. Exactly, and to me, uh, with appearance, we get a certain distinction. We are, and in many countries, that would be the case. You take a look at the woman's hair and head, for instance, in Jerusalem and uh, Nablus, the women never cover their faces. They only cover the hair. They have, and they have a type which is with this embroidery and uh, long gowns, but they are white. So in Jerusalem, you find that the women use their hair in a very distinctive yes. way, trying and to project. So with their attire, I know exactly where she is from. Okay. And so this is why I think this is uh, to distinguish certain functions, different uh, level of the, um, not for everybody. Okay. Well, exousia, the authority of the woman is the hair, and Paul connect that to the angels based in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, or Isaiah, chapter 6, you have these powerful beings in front of the throne of God that they cover with the winds. Right. You see? In front of God. So, the, 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 the analogy is that for respect, they cover. You see? And Paul is talking about that there is authority in the hair of the woman because it's a sign of respect on the church. And outside of the church, people will recognize the same as you did in, in Jerusalem, that that lady is not from other temple, is a Christian, and they will ask her what she believes. 
the, the, the relation, the connection will be one of respect, you see? And the, the voice of the people will pass and they say, no, 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 she is from, from the Jesus movement. She's different. She's not like this woman's here or that woman's there. You see? That is why Paul is making uh, this distinction. Verse 10. You don't find the word, the word bill. You find exousia, authority. So the Gnostic women were provide, proving that they have authority by not covering their head. That basically, they were different. And there were the... You say, Socrates used to say, man is the measure, but now these ladies were saying, we are the measure, you see? And Paul responds, it is precisely the opposite. Having respect for the angels uh, is what you need to do, and if they cover in the presence of God, you that are worshiping with them in the presence of God also have to cover. That's the main Point Paul is doing. Any question about that? So it was saying the women should not, their hair is the only cover that they need. They only cover. They, they, what happened with the nomination later that make a big issue of the covering of the hair is not biblical. He was talking only of the hair. Well, the, there's a, when the verse is about Judah, when he, when he sleeps with Tamar, thing is he didn't know it was her because and he thought he was, she was a prostitute because her face was covered so the idea is that covering was something that was common of harlots but not of respectable women right in that case long time ago before what paul is writing yes but that cover was different this one is just the hair and the hair must be in a certain way that then uh, uh, proclaim respect but at the same time, a distinction from others' lady or others' women that they're going to confront in the city in that time. So they will know from the beginning when they pass by the church, when they see the women, that these ones are different from the others. They will not enter to the temple thinking that it's another temple where they're going to have the kind of worship they have in, in Aphrodite temple, you see? They, uh... I see a difference between covering the head and covering the face. Yeah. What, what she's talking about, covering uh -huh. the face, not covering the head. Well, that's mm -hmm. a different yeah. situation and subject altogether. Yeah. More than 1,000 years before, in another, in another setting. The veil is hair. Only that. We have a painting in the girl's dorm, painter green. And it is a marvelous painting of the uh, of that part of the world. And all the gowns, and look at the headdresses. They are covered only their hair. And it is all done in exactly this type of teddy form. Wow. And he did a meticulous job. So that will give you a very good picture of what is uh, being discussed. But you know, uh, we know this by, by studying a lot and, and going back. Archaeology is important because 
from what you discovered in archaeology, you began to realize what was happening, the daily life and all that. And thanks to all that today and the internal evidence of the document, we can realize why Paul was trying to fix this, this misunderstanding of authority. This is the issue. Authority. And what is transcendent? You know, the Gnostics want to talk about the divine spark, and you are already divine, and you have already mortality, and because you realize that you are already divine and have immortality, you already resurrect because you have the knowledge, and knowledge is salvation itself, you see? The cave of Plato. But Paul is saying, no, no, no. There are, there are angels. <laughs> no eons, angels. <laughs> And they are respectful. And when we worship, we worship with them. And also we have to be respectful. Okay? And says that man should not cover his head, you know? And, and today, you, depending on the settings, you will have an issue with that. You say, what happened with the kippah? You see? So it's good to understand what is happening 2,000 years ago. If you don't have more questions, let's go to another section, the food sacrifice to idols. You covered that yesterday? Good. But let's see what you learned because I want to know. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 13. And the student is the one that studied before. So you already studied about that. Okay. We're going to ask our sister to read the portion of the scripture. One, two, okay. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man thinks that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be, for there, excuse me, for though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and many lords. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all are things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man the knowledge, for some, with conscience of the idol unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commandeth us not to God, for neither if we eat, are we the better? Neither if we eat not, are we the worse? But take heed, lest by any means of this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hath knowledge sit at meat in the idol temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through that knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin, so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, 
ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. So we have the issue of liberty, use liberty properly, not as a stumbling block. <clears throat> Let me give you first an outline based on, on the Greek, I, why, what I did understand of this pericope, this section. Uh, in verse eight, uh, in chapter eight, verse one to three, Paul is talking about true and false knowledge. All the time, that's the issue. Okay, true and false knowledge. Uh, you who say that you have knowledge have asked me about eating food which had been offered to idols. If you have true knowledge, you will not feel superior to other members, but will build them up and love them more. Verse 4 to 6. Here Paul presents his own belief about the gods. You and I know that idols are only stone or wood. There is only one true God. Okay? Then verse 8 uh, to verse 13. Here comes the exhortation, the ethical exhortation. And it's amazing what he did. But for some members less certain about this than you are, they feel that if they eat such food, it will be disloyalty to Christ. That's verse 7 and 8. That will be the effect on them if you eat this kind of food. You will affect them. That is what you must consider because you and they are brother. And if you sink ag against them, you are sinning against Christ itself. Verse 9 to 11. What do you think that made Paul cry this thing? This is a specific issue. You studied that already? <laughs> Tell me. Let me give you a little background. At that time, the many Greeks had uh, ceased to believe seriously in their traditional gods. You see? Such as Zeus, Hermes, Artemis. You find that in Acts 14 and Acts 19. But they still have the practice of festivals. And in this practice of festival, there is a lot of food. The food was divided in three parts. You see? Uh, one was dedicated to the temple. You have it here in chapter 10, verse 14 to 22. One part was eaten by the people in their home. Also, you have that information in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 27. And another part was sold on, on the public market. That's information you have it in 1 Corinthians 10, 25. I knew a professor that used to say, no, but the market is Jewish. And they only buy in Jewish markets, so there is no problem. 
He's not talking about peak. He's not talking about things that you cannot eat. But the reality is that they are in the diaspora. So the market is a common market. And these members come from a pagan background. They have, they understand they have to eat clean, but they understand also that this uh, possibility of eating a food that, or a meal that is not uh, properly kosher <laughs> can bring uh, to them a, a, a internal conflict. You see? And then Paul, this brilliant mind that is have a good understanding of Greek philosophy, Roman traditions, and the Hebrew Bible, and he have a, a, an encounter, you see, where God talked to him. You see, it's not only philosophical, it's verbal, you see. He understands now Christianity. He's clear that those idols are nothing. The issue is not that those are idols are something. The issue is the weak in the church. And it's amazing what he did. He said that you that have knowledge, your knowledge must be based on love. For the one that is weak. Therefore, you are the one who have to do what? Look out for them. So he implying you will not let them uh, uh, feel confused. So you will not do what you know you can do because you have the liberty and the understanding to do it. You see? So you are not morally allowed to do that because you are going to take to help the weak. I think that was brilliant. Porque behind this simple statement was the mentality of the Gnostic. Oh, I already have knowledge. And because I have knowledge, I already have resurrection. I wake up, I understand. So I am free for everything I want. I can do whatever I want because I have assurance in my knowledge. And, and Paul is tackling that, but in a, in a very sweet way. He even ta is talking to the ones that are weak. You see, because sooner or later they become strong because they, they grow in understanding of the church and in experience with Christ. But even when we have that understanding and experience, you see, uh, maybe you are thinking that you can see an actual movie in your house, but there's these little kids that if they you see that kind of action movie in your house, they will be confused. You see? Maybe you think that there is something special that you want to do this in the Sabbath, but because you are with these uh, young adolescents and they, they don't have that knowledge, their the mentality is more tender, it's better not to do, talk about that. You see? It's better not to say nothing. 
in the car when you come from the church <laughs> because of the weak. But you know you can do it because what you're going to say is truth. But you better don't do it because you affect the weak. And then when they get older, they being so affected with criticism, with criticism, and they don't understand, they think it's hypocrisy. You see? That finally you ask yourself, well, why, why my daughters and my grandsons are not in the church? Paul was very clever. You know, he challenged us. But at the same time, the standard is for everybody. Using the issue of idols. What did, what did it mean actually when the food was offered to idols? Uh-huh. What's it mean offered to the idols? Were they blessed by the idols? Or did they put them in front of them to supposedly eat? Like happened in India. They put the, the uh, in, in, in Burma, in India, in Asia. They, 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 put, uh, they don't eat the food for themselves. So they have the idol and they offer that food to the idol. So the, the food stays there until it's raw. Well, then how does this food offered to idols get to the other people, the, like the market? Oh, because all the food was offered to idols. All the food? Yeah. But then one part was taken well, for the houses and the other part was taken to the market. Well, you see? And let me tell you, it's, it's, you, you want a hot potato now? <laughs> put your silver, let, let's put it like this. Ellen G.Y. clearly tell us that those, let's say, idols that have been used for, for Satanism, for worship uh, demons, they'll still have a magnet of all the demons. So you should not have it in your house. You should do something with them, but not keep it. You see? So there is always the connection between that that was offered to the dark side or, or, or the demons. You see? So they have that confusion. They say, but how can we eat something that was already offered? Yeah. I am not faithful to Jesus. That was the issue. But Paul was beyond that issue. He tackled two things at the same time. You see? He said, idols is nothing. You see? This is mysticism. This is not reality. You can eat it. You see? But then, he used the moral principle. He established a moral principle. He established an ethics. And this, the principle is, even when you have freedom to do something, hold yourself because of the weak that are seeing you. Don't do it. And it's true. Isn't that true that some, what may be a sin for somebody may not be a sin for someone else? That postmodernism is coming back. Let's put it this way. Let's put it, yes, it's true. But then we go to the cultural. We establish a principle that is universal in the church. You see? Control yourself. Don't use your freedom because the weak and you have to lift up the whip, you have to love him. And you say, well, it's not clear. Okay, it's clear when you have a grandson. Because you do this. Maybe with your sons you were tough. 
but with your grandsons, you are very soft. And then you say, no, 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 don't talk about that in front of him. You want to keep his innocence. You see, you don't want to disturb him. And that's what Paul is doing. That's what I love him so much because he, he, here we see the Ten Commandments. Because the truth that you say without love is a cruelty. And Paul is trying to teach us how to love. And he used as an excuse the weak. Okay. Right, I have two hands. Um, when did the transition happen between considering those people weak to considering them strong? Because I feel like nowadays, you know, in our church, the people who cannot eat anything, the people who cannot do anything, the most strict people about all of our rules are considered the strong, those are the good people. And the people who are more flexible are considered, those are the weak. Uh -huh. Because they, you know... They went to another country and they just ate what they gave them. Uh -huh. how, how, when did that change happen? I cannot answer that. I know the reality. You see? That for the ones that really feel they have freedom, the conservative that don't eat this and don't eat that and don't eat that, like evangelicals. The evangelicals think that Leviticus 11 is not real. It's this. The, the new covenant put... Uh, uh, annulates the old covenant, you see? So you don't have to follow that. For them, we are the weak. But in reality, the new covenant that they call the new covenant of grace has a discontinuity and a continuity in the New Testament. In the New Testament, you find the, the Ten Commandments, all the commandments in all part of the New Testament, and they are still there. Not only the Sabbath, the Ten. So you have a continuity with the law. Okay? But also you have a continuity of other institutions. Not only the first week, not only the Sabbath, not only the, the Ten Commandments. Marriage. You have a continuity in the New Testament. You see? So, what you say is important because people marry to one definition. They have a file. And they say, well, the, the weak are them. But in reality, we are the ones that are following what really the Bible says. Trying to follow. The we have the intention. of. A, he's going first. He's going first before you answer her. Uh -huh. uh, tell us a little bit about the tension between 1 Corinthians 8 and Acts 15, 29, where the council forbid uh, eating food off of idol. And Revelation chapter 2, with the letter to Ephesians, the letter to Pergamon, the letter to Thyatira, also are very strong, strong against eating food sacrifice, sacrifice to idol. Show me 1 Corinthians 15 and read me what it says. Said, Let's go to the Bible. Yes, it said, That ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from publication, from which if we keep yourself, you shall do well. Farewell. Well. Okay. But then, 
Did Paul tell them to eat it? No, 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 but Paul tell them, you can eat it. No, he never told that. He told, you have the liberty to do things, but don't do it. You see? And what we have in, in, in Acts 15 is the confirmation, the explicit confirmation of the, of the norm. Don't do it. That protect the principle. You see? But the principle is you don't do things because you love the others. That's the way Paul wants to tackle the situation, to at the same time uh, control the liberty that the Gnostics used to say they have, you see? But there is no contradiction between the principle of love that Paul is establishing, but he never says you, have, you can eat it, you see? He says, don't do it, you see? with the norm that appears in Acts. Okay? Okay. He's going to say something. The, Greek, uh, the, the, the question. Uh -huh. This is concept, the weak or, or common local contrarian. The strong. The strong. This is all concept for other people. But the problem is, what is the concept of God and the Bible, you are weak or, or no weak? This is the problem. Society, uh, catalog, 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 catalog. Uh -huh. you are not weak for liberal or something, but what is the concept of for you? This is most important. And let me say it this way, so we say we're going to use our belts, so let's say it this well. The kingdom of God is announced by the church. The kingdom of God is in our heart. Jesus bring it. You see? The church proclaimed the kingdom of God. You see? And that's the only kingdom. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. Okay? But inside the kingdom of God, people create other kingdoms. The kingdom of the conservative and the kingdom of the liberals. And they fight together. You see? But there should not be parties. We studied that before. Okay? There should not be parties. There should only be only one kingdom. And we have to unite and be clear in what the Bible asks. You see? Let's do it that way, softly. With whipped cream and strawberry. Very softly. <laughs> if you're going to be very serious about this, technically, the church is not the kingdom, is the, but it has the responsibility of proclaiming the kingdom. The consummation of the kingdom is when? When Jesus comes. And he will fix everybody that didn't follow the principles. Because norms are to protect principles, but norms are not the principle. You see? And even when, when, when Paul says, and the woman uh, be silent on the church, and we already explained why he said that in that specific context, or in Timothy also, that's, that's not even a norm. 
You see, that is just a rule, and a specific rule for that location, but that rules point to one principle too. So you have three things. Principles that are universal, norms that are to protect the principle, and rules that are local in a specific situation for something that happened. You want to know that more about that? You go to the Theological uh, Adventist Commentary. There is a chapter, uh, Christian Life, written by my mentor, uh, of Kish. And he explained that very well. Okay? So we have the information. In which, in I, I don't see the book there, between all those books. Tell me. What's the name of the book you uh, Theological Commentary, the oh. Seven-Day Theological Commentary. You see? That is another book of theology of the church, you see? But the official one in, in which we all have to agree is the belief. That's the official book, okay? Which yeah. one is the official? The belief. Well, the, the they don't have, they don't, yeah, the fundamental belief, they don't have a number. Okay. Keep the number outside. But I think that even with that, even, even that, I think, I'm not positive, but even that, the book said that we can disagree with one of them. Well, you, as long as we don't fight, that we can disagree. Yeah, you, let's say in that book you have the, uh, the two notions of, of, of the human nature of Christ. You see, you have it there both, so you have to work with that. But you cannot say that you believe only one and the other, no. Because the human nature of Christ is so complex, and there are things that are seems to us simple, but they are very complex. Let's say light. You take for granted light, but there are two theories of light. One that lights are wave, and have been proven, and also that light are particles, and have been proven too. <laughs> so you cannot do nothing. You know you have both. But then when we found that we have enough. Enough evidence to support something, and we agree to support, and we vote for that, and it's part of the belief is there. But when we talk about the special resurrection and all that, we defend that. You will see that that is not on the belief. It's an Adventist knowledge, but we don't have enough biblical evidence to point that, so it's not there. The divinity and humanity of Christ. There is a very fine book that was written some time ago by Samuel mm -hmm. The name of the book? Humanity and Divinity of Christ. Okay. And uh, I... he even preached right here some years ago. Okay. That was excellent. It is. I. I... Have not read that one. Ask me, I can. Okay. <laughs> I have to look if I see one of those in the, the bookstore. Not today. Mm -hmm. No. Uh, no. I think you have to ask me, and I'll tell you later why. Okay. You want me to ask it now or later? <laughs> Matthew 18. Okay. <laughs> so you also study. Is there any question about this? Okay. I have another question. Marriage problem. Hmm. Uh huh. Um, 
quickly, I don't want to take too much time, but um, is there a fear of, or is there space to have like different ideas of what constitutes, uh, you know, violating your own conscience? Or is there a fear that like, it just makes it up for like moral relativism, you know, sin is each person what they perceive? How you answer that? How you see it? Tell me your window of reality about that. And then I can answer. Well, I feel like when it comes to like food sacrifice to idols, I think there are, you know, sins definitely, like actual sins, but some things may put people in places where they are sinning, although it may not seem, you know, to everybody. So, for example, I always tell my friends, like, um, you know, Spanish music, really lively Spanish music, in a Hispanic church would bring back memories for those people of their life in sin, usually. Mm -hmm. You know, salsa, merengue, that stuff like that. That's what they listened to when they were in the world. So to them, that's just putting them in a sinful mindset and opening the doors to a lot of bad things. But that same music I've heard in, you know, American churches where they do not have that context, it's just like, oh, look at a nice Spanish song. And they do not feel that sinful feeling because they don't have that connection. Mm -hmm. So in that case, I feel like the sin is relative, but I think that is where you come, have that principle, that if, they, that if there's a mixed audience, not to do it, just out of respect. But I think that some people may think that, no, sin is sin, that music is bad for everybody, and, you know, kind of like that. Mm -hmm. so, and your question is? My question is, what is, what is a church, what is, what is the, the answer? Is it really that it's across the board is wrong, or it really is depending on the person and how they react to it? Ah. Let's answer. Well, there is a great book of Ellen White writing about music. Great. And then there is a, a professor on Hammer. And you can learn there about music, the most wonderful knowledge and, and, and answers you can find there. Dr. Hammer wrote a great uh, study of how music evolved from the time of David, how it started, what was allowed in the, uh, in the court, or what, what was uh, appropriate for it. Mm -hmm. and he ordered, orderly, meticulously, since he was a singer, since he was a, a music player, since he was an infant, so to speak, seven years old, since he he um, comforted kings in, in desperate situations, illnesses. So uh, there is so much to say, I don't know where to start. But we do know which music is appropriate. As you study the Bible, you will know, because I can tell you, I was a ballet dancer. Would I do it today? Wow. Never. Never. I like some music, and I love classical music. But there are, music evolves the things that maybe would never be appropriate. 
You know, I used to sing a lullaby to my child in my mother's tongue, which is Yugoslavia, former. And uh, all of a sudden, the young child being sick, very sick, starts sobbing. I said, should I stop? She said, no, it is beautiful. <laughs> so you see what evolved, not that I sing that well, but it will be as as you excel in the studies of the Bible, I am sure God will reveal to you personally what is right and what is not right. The more you are connect with God the more you surrender with him and he knows what you do and what you don't do, what you think and why you don't think that, what you hear and why you don't hear that. You see? Why you look that and why you don't look that. And you surrender everything to him. He is really the one who has the answer for you in that issue. You see? We can, we can talk about first that sin is sin. That's biblical. You see? And the conflict is between two great musicians. So this is not easy. Because when, when before Lucifer fell, he had dominion over music. And he can really play with that. You see? And music is very powerful. Because you don't use your frontal brain for music. It comes directly and emotionally working you. And we try to make a dichotomy between lyric and rhythm. You see? That's the way we try to go out. I think it's almost like a Gnostic way of thinking. You put good words, it's effective. Yeah. The thing is, too, remember that God at times winks at our ignorance. You know, if we don't know, God doesn't hold that against us. But like say, as we study, as God reveals to us, then when we realize that, then we have to make a change. Just like in my own, you know, I was raised Catholic, you know, and growing up, I was into the rock music and all that. And then I was, oh, wow. I went to a Pentecostal church and I threw all my rock music out. But here was this contemporary Christian music. And for me, that was a stepping stone. Mm -hmm. You know, I, and as I grew more into knowing what God wanted, it's like, I don't listen to that anymore either. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, it's a progression and God leads us into that. But it says, you know, we have to study and we have to listen and compare and then allow God to speak to us. And then we, we can move on. For example, I came from a Jewish background and becoming Adventist was easy for me was easy. When you talk about the Sabbath, wow. But when you teach me about Jesus and the Sabbath, the Sabbath of Jesus, that blow my mind. And when I, I have been in Israel three times, and when I see the folks on the wall, you know, praying, that really melt my heart. There is something I cannot even get to that wall. <laughs> you see, that frightened me. We 
lived uh, for a long time in the Holy Land of Jordan, but at the, even at that time, in fifty late 50s, uh-huh. uh, that part was part of Jerusalem was Jordanian. And so when I first saw that, I said, what kind of... Uh, this brings me back to orthodoxy. I, I was raised orthodox. Uh, it's kind of uh, ritual. Ritualism, uh-huh. you see. Uh, it frightened me. I never ever did succumb even to this little. To ritualism, mm-hmm. to Buddhism, because of um, Well, you know, we practice. We practice ritualism when we put the table. Uh, I know, but it isn't this kind of ritual. Oh, no, I know. The religious the repetition, one. Repetition. You see, I recently witnessed to a young man, uh, a young couple. Uh-huh. She's Colombian, Catholic, and he's Jewish. And he said, oh, you are a Sabbath keeper, because I always tell you I'm a Sabbath keeper whenever I get a chance. Uh-huh. And she said, oh, did you know California has a big movement for Sabbath keepers? And so we talked about certain things, and I, I spotted something in, in the uh, cart that shouldn't be there. <laughs> uh, and, and then he asked me out of the blue, oh, do you have uh, um, drums in the music? Mm. I said, not really. Well, I have even, to this day, I saved uh, the text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he blessed me and uh, thanked me for whatever I had witnessed, but didn't want to come to the meetings. And I know what? Music. Mm. So there you are, you know, because I said, definitely. No. Okay. I always look at things as to, is it to the glory of God? Mm-hmm. Or whose glory is it to? Right. Or why do we want this particular thing or this particular music and so on? And I think it's very difficult to be honest to ourselves and answer honestly, is this to the glory of God or is it to my wants? That's deep, because more than feelings is ideas, presuppositions, that's deep. But you know there is beautiful music outside of um, Christian, there is specific country, and therefore they are not offensive, but, but they are not appropriate for the uh, house of the Lord, you know, worship. There are two, those are two different things. And when they, uh, the uh, Jewish people danced and uh, celebrated because they were exuberant, but that took place outside of the uh, sanctuary. With music, there is a tendency to raise the bar when it's in the church, but it's not the same tendency when it's out of the church and you are in camp meeting or something like that, and there is a fire, you, you used to, 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 to sing things that you don't think in the church, you see? 
the bar is very high when you are in the church. That's why I said that in the Bible there is also a wonderful example of what David mm -hmm. did with the music. And I think, my, I mean, my example is kind of really big, but I think a lot of that comes from the idea of cultural norms, and, and the thing is those are two different cultures that are clashing. So the, you know, the English-American culture and the Spanish-speaking culture, they're two different cultures that develop different norms to support different principles, or to, to support the same principle, they develop different norms. So, I think that's what that comes A comment to. about culture, which applies to many things, but the origin of the culture also has to be considered. Some music, its culture was pagan. Mm -hmm. Even if they put religious lyrics to it. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the origin of the culture, no matter where it came from, so we have separate churches because we want to honor that culture, and we're going to have this culture and this culture. Uh -huh. I think one has to look at what was the origin of the culture in the first place. And I'm a firm believer that there's God's culture Amen. and man's culture. So let me ask you once again to fast your seatbelt. Let's talk about this. If we want to legislate music, and we want to establish a high bar and a standardized music, we have to do it from the beginning. First, we have a department of music, and with the years in the GC, disappear, and they give it that department to youth, to Ramsolin, remember? And things began to be different. Second, if you have schools that are private schools, that are Christian schools, you should talk and teach music from primary and have the same syllabus for all the church, the same way we have a Sabbath school lesson. And then we have a standard and an understanding from when you are a little boy. But because we don't have that standard and that understanding and we just grab this principle and that principle, you know, the problem is that everything is too loose and the influence of different culture make the thing more intense. Okay? What he says a little bit about the idea of that there, I mean, there's God's culture and there's man's culture, but I am a firm believer that all cultures have been, God has been trying to reach both all cultures and the devil has been trying to reach all cultures from the beginning of time. So mm -hmm. some people will say classical, you know, classical music is better, or this clothing from India is better than the clothing from whatever the example may be. But I believe that there is there has been devil worship in Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia, forever. Mm -hmm. And there has also been people worshiping God in all of those countries at the same time since the beginning of time. It may look different, but it's always, you know, it's not that God has only been focused on Israel. Because we know that's not true. So you've, you, you establish that there is genuine worship in music that don't even, isn't a standard on the church. What? That there is a genuine intention of worship God in culture. That, okay, from the beginning. Yeah. You see? So in that, I'm sure you can agree to disagree, but I'm sure. <laughs> You agree? Yeah, but I think the principle, if you go back to the principles again, is to what are the principles within the culture. 
If we, do, if we talk to music like that, that like a philosophical phenomenon, <laughs> let's, let's do it the same with philosophy, you see? There is a statement of philosopher that can be Christianized. There are truths that Christianity can have, you see? The only thing you have to do to those thoughts that are true and to those rhythms that are genuine is to baptize them. <laughs> That's the way to do it. And what I'm telling you is that we, we need not to talk about the consequences that we are living now. Trying to establish a principle, a method that will keep us in hermeneutics. And that means that the General Conference should open the Department of Music again, call all the experts, and begin to work with the situation. And at the same time, the method will be to establish a system that is applicable to all the schools, primary and secondary, in a way that is open, you see, but keeps the principles that you want to, to establish in a way that is open, you know. It, it, it's not that rigid in, in terms of music because music is very universal and very flexible, but it keeps certain principles because you say the principle of all the principles and the truth behind all the truths is to glorify God. Okay? What association do you have this music? Somebody have association with the Mundanao music? He use the same music inside the, the, the Christian music. This association is important in the communication with you. We fix the problem. Now we write the letter and send them to the GC. <laughs> they have the budget to do that and the sources. <laughs> so, you have any question of those topics or anything else? First Corinthians. The position, the the, the order, the position, the the men and the head and the woman. Uh huh. What application and normal? You want to say something, say it. I translate. <laughs> Which is the real position when we apply norm and principle when man is the head and the woman uh, should give the, the place to man as a head. Okay? So, let's go. Let's try that one. I know what Paul is doing. In this case, it's clear. And he quote this case to resolve a problem. You see? A problem, a problem of liberty. You see? That is not correctly used when affect the person that is weak. So, if you have real wisdom, you use your liberty in a lovely way to your brother that is weak and need to be... Uh, help need to grow up in that area. So I think what Paul did is not only establish a principle, but also Paul is establishing like a mentoring. So 
we, we are like a family and the ones that have no more knowledge should mentor with love the ones that are increasing in knowledge. But you have any to say about? Okay. Okay. What? What apply today? I want the specific question. Well, how, how does that <laughs> idea to apply, apply to, to now? Because the idea is that it's mentorship, right? So, uh -huh. um, God has more knowledge than man, and man had, or had more knowledge than woman. So that's, that was the plan of succession, right? Mm -hmm. One would help the other grow. The way Paul put it is this way. I want to follow what Paul says because he has a specific intention when he says it. The issue that we have today is not really what Paul is tied to establish. Paul says that the Father is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of man and man is the head of woman and that has to be respected. You see, the principle that you are asking is what it means man as head. That's the principle. Well, some, somebody reclaimed equality. Okay, some people says, uh, he says that somebody reclaims equality. You see, because before the fall, they argue that God was the head, and man and woman were partners. But in Ephesians, we realize that, again, Paul insists, the man is the spiritual head, the moral head. But he has to love his woman the way she needed. And again, he don't say that the woman has to love man. He never said that in Ephesians. He says that she has to respect him. You see? So there is a tension behind. In Ephesians, and here, he never used the word agape as the basic of relation in the respect that women have to, to show to men. The men die for the woman with, see, like Jesus died for the church. And it's, G uh -huh. it's more more standard. More standard. And, and, and precisely that's why Jesus came to show to Adam. He came to, I have to say Adam in Spanish because the way it works in my head. Jesus is the second Adam and he, teach, he taught the first one how to love, how to redeem the one that is weak. You see? Because she fell. But in the New Testament, both fell. But because both were the image of God, until Adam didn't felt the dominion wasn't given totally to the serpent. Because Adam, Eve, fell. But the serpent didn't have the dominion. But when Adam felt, then both that are the image of God Give the dominion to the servant. You see? And that's his point. 
that they have to work together and stick together. The, the, the men have this moral responsibility that have religious connotations, you see? But both have to be together, tied together. And she has to respect the initiative of that moral responsibility. But then the question comes, you know, questions always are there. And says, when, and when man doesn't develop that moral, spiritual responsibility, when he, he decides not to be responsible, and she has to take care of everything. Let the ladies answer this question. What we should think? What is to be done? What I see is that even when the ladies are the, the ones dealing with the all responsibility, the religious one, the moral one, the thing of the house, they are really the head of the house. Some of them treat men as a head even when he is not assuming the responsibility. Others, they decide not to do it. So, it really is an issue of the ladies, how you teach us in this. Why is happening this? How you see that? Not for me now. I put it back. <laughs> I believe that the man should be the head of the household. And the woman should be the helpmate. And um, I think that um, in the case that uh, your husband doesn't do it, I think that you should lead him in the direction where he can get spiritual help and knowledge to, be, to finally become that person that God wants him to be, the head of the household. And that is the excellent answer. And because you give that answer, I'm sure God put it in your heart. I will prove, prove that with the Greek. <clears throat> in the household, women are despotes. And you know what despotes means? Yeah. It's like curious, but it's not curious. It's a master. It's a a ruler. So in the oikos, the house, the Bible says that women are despotes, are the rulers. And what you're telling me is that you're going to use your, your power to make man accomplish his responsibility. And you know how this is proved in psychology? In psychology has been proved that even when women have the capacity of reading maps and have a spatial mind, <laughs> they control better a small space and the details in the small spaces. And we don't have that ability. So they already bio, uh, are, are designed like that. And because man is designed the way it is designed, he's not that good in details. And yeah, he, he's not, uh, and he's not capable of many things at the same time. But he's not that uh, his mind is not uh, uh, is not putting special small details. You see, he can be manual, 
and, and do something, but that that he's doing is coming from his mind to his hand. And he can think mathematics or whatever in detail, but that is abstract too. His mind is made for big space and abstractions, you see. The mind of the woman also have that capacity, but the tendency is to concentrate in the materials and the emotional details. In, in the way they are wired, yes. And you notice that with the years. Because both are the... Let me say it in another way. Man is not made in the image of woman. Woman is not made in the image of man. Man is made in the image of God and woman is made in the image of God. But the plan of God is that both images that are different and unique complement each other. And because that is not happening in the biblical sense, we have problems. <laughs> uh -huh. Let me pray because I have to finish and we continue. Heavenly Father, thank you for this interesting uh, and peculiar uh, questions that we are trying to answer here. We need your wisdom, of course. We can just properly describe reality the way we understand it, but you are the one who understands everything. So we ask you for wisdom in his name and thank you for this seminar and thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.